Our scripture this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, 5 through 17. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put, on, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, go ahead and be seated. And if you will, um, let's, let's pray and invite uh, the Spirit of God to, to minister to us through, through the word. Heavenly Father, your servant Paul wrote these words to a church in Rome nearly 2,000 years ago. How then can they have meaning for us today? Uh, it is only if your Spirit shines light on our hearts and on your Word. So we pray that your Spirit would come and awaken our hearts and our souls and our minds and our spirits to know you more deeply. God, we pray that you would visit us in this time, that you would minister truth and freedom to us. And God, let the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, <clears throat> for those of you who are new or visiting or um, just have been out of town and are, are back. Uh, again, I just want to welcome you and, and thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. It, it really is an honor to, to worship the Lord with you. Um, we've been spending the last several weeks, uh, in fact, most of the summer, we've been spending uh, considering Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6. Um, and each week, uh, we kind of recap the prayer um, because it's so important to us. Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and prayer is central to our life as a Christian. One thing that we're going to see today 
is that there are powers and forces even in our lives that on our own we are unable, unable to conquer. But we serve a God who is able. And God, in all of his power and majesty and divine sovereignty, hears our prayers. So prayer is is powerful and it is central, it is integral to the Christian life. And in this moment, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you've been coming week after week, you've heard me say this probably a dozen times now. Uh, That statement is his prayer. Jesus' prayer could be summed up in, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything after that that Jesus prays is explaining and unpacking and delivering to us what that looks like. So when Jesus says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that means where the kingdom of God is, the will of God is done, your will be done. In the kingdom of God, there are no needs that are unmet. Give us this day our daily bread. In the kingdom of God, there's relational restoration. Forgive us as we forgive others. In the kingdom of God, there's spiritual restoration. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so we've been spending the the rest of the the time, so we spent one week on that prayer, and we've spent the, 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 the last several weeks Looking at each sort of movement, what does it mean for us as a church in D.C. to be a part of, to, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, right? Uh, Jesus says church twice in all of the gospels, twice, but he talks about the kingdom over and over and over again. Hundreds of times, Jesus unpacks what the kingdom of God is. Twice, he says the word church. Which means if we're going to be about the work of Jesus, we can't be about the work of our church alone, right? We have to be about the work of the kingdom. And I want to encourage you with this very discouraging thing, especially especially if you've been been rolling with us from day one. Um, The average lifespan of a church is about 80 years. means it just outlives us. It also means... That from the moment we first opened our doors as a church, we had an expiration date. There's no local church that that lasts forever, right? So you do see some of the churches like established 250 years ago. But it's got an expiration date. They just don't know what it is yet, right? I I can actually prove it to you, right? Because the three greatest church planters that we know of, Paul, Peter, and James... All planted churches that no longer exist. All right? Paul plants the church in Rome. First Baptist Rome, I don't think it was called that, but First Baptist Rome isn't there anymore. Right? Uh, First Pres of Jerusalem, the one that James planted. Right? James, you guys know who James was, right? Jesus' brother. Right? I have to remind myself of this every day, that if Jesus' brother's church didn't last, mine's not going to either. Right? Ours is not going to. Which means if we're going to make the impact that we dream of, the world-changing impact that we dream of, we must be people of the kingdom. 
We must follow Jesus as servants and, and, and messengers of his kingdom, bringing little bits of kingdom to come on earth in D.C. as it is in heaven. And so we follow Jesus into that, and we, we explore what it looks like for us as Union Church to meet the needs of the city. To not just be consumers, but to be givers and servants and and lovers and missionaries in our city. Right? D.C. isn't just a collection of cool restaurants and trendy bars. It's people. And just like Jesus, when he entered the city in, uh, in Luke 19, when he entered Jerusalem, and he wept for Jerusalem as he looked on the city, we ought to see our city for what it is. Sheep without shepherds and weep, and serve. And in the same way, if we're going to be people who are seeing this kingdom advance, we have to be pursuing reconciliation between other people, between families, between ethnicities, uh, between socioeconomic groups. We are seeking restoration. The church of God, the the kingdom of heaven, the final vision that we get uh, in in, uh, Revelation, what John looks up and sees in Revelation 4 and Revelation 7 is this kingdom of heaven where there's every tribe, tongue, and language. It is multi-generational. Uh, it's transgenerational, trans-ethnic. Panta-ethnos is what Jesus says when he says, go to all nations. It means go to all ethnicities, all people groups, every creed, every religion, every type of person will be comprised, the heaven will be comprised of all types of people, which means as a church we must pursue reconciliation. We don't get to take a step back and say, mm, it's not really for us. And then finally, if we're going to be people who pursue the kingdom, and this is what uh, we talked about last week and we're going to talk about for the time that we have this week, um, we have to pursue holiness. And friends, look, um, I, I am... I am guilty as charged with what I'm about to say. Um, but people in tribes like the one that we sort of roll in, um, people of our generation, um, we have reacted very harshly to the things that we were reared in. Um, some of you grew up in very legalistic, this is me, legalistic, fundamentalist settings where everything was work, work, do better, do more, be better, do more, stop doing this. God's not going to be happy with you if you don't do these things or if you do these things, right? And the, the, the vice that was just clamped on our souls and that is clamped on your souls when you have to work your way into the favor of God was just so much that when we broke free of it, we either swung hard in Christianity the other side or we left the faith altogether. And so we're hard on the other side and, and we say things like this that I say, I spent a whole series saying this week after week after week. There's nothing you can do or fail to do that will make God love you any more or any less than he does in Jesus right now. And that is 100% true. It is central to what comes next. And we are called to pursue holiness. I'm so guilty of preaching the love of God without the justice of God. I'm so guilty of of walking in the freedom without realizing that we were set free from sin. 
so that we could be as we were created to be, holy. Church, we have to pursue holiness. And here's the thing is those other things that we want to pursue, they don't work if we're not walking in, communing with God in holiness. And so last week we, we, we mentioned the fact that <clears throat> That if we're going to talk about sin, we have to talk about the consequences of sin. And first, we talked about and we addressed the fact that there is a penalty of sin. It's death. But last week, we reminded ourselves in Romans 8, 1 through 11, that Christ conquered death. And therefore, we no longer bear the penalty of sin. But the second part, the second consequence of sin is that we are beholden to its power. Penalty of sin, the power of sin. The last thing is the presence of sin. But this week we're going to talk about how God by his spirit through his word frees us from the power of sin in our lives. So if you would, let's look back at Romans chapter um, 8. And while uh, Melissa read um, 5 through 17, uh, we're, we're going to look at most of it, but we're going to spend our time really on one verse, and that's verse 13. So if I could just read that to you again, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When somebody asks you to describe Christianity, how do you do it? Just think about that for a second. What are the words that come to your mind? What is, what is Christianity? What is the Christian faith? What is Christian spirituality? I'll just tell you some of the things that when I was exploring this this week and writing it down that came to my mind. The first is relationship, right? Because I'm a good millennial Christian. It's a relationship, not a religion, right? So relationship came to my mind. Love came to my mind. Peace. Freedom. These are the things that came to my mind. Now, different people, if you're not in the church, like different people have a lot of different opinions about Christianity. But for me, relationship, freedom, hope, love, joy, peace. You know what didn't come to my mind? Violence. War. But I want you to read through the New Testament, look at the entire Old Testament, and ask yourselves, how can we not, how can we ignore the violence of Christianity? And I don't mean that in sort of a cultural way, although we could talk about that and talk about the ways we need to repent. But what I want to, what I want to submit to you today is that Paul is asking us to be violent, to make war, and the object of that violence and the object of that war is not the other, it's the flesh within us. Christianity is violent, and it would be violent. We ought to be violent against the things that would make us violent towards others. We ought to hate the parts of ourselves that would cause us to hate others and to make war against it. It's a violent religion. Listen to what Paul says, right? And, and, and you have to hear this. This is coming from somebody who is, who's a self-proclaimed pacifist, 
right? Like, I get nervous at violence. It, like, when I have to kill a bug, like, I have to amp myself up. Like, this isn't murder. This isn't murder. You could do this, right? Like, I don't like to, that's just, but it's violent. And if you, if you miss this, you will miss how God re- re- relieves you, saves you uh, from the power of sin in your life. If you miss the warfare, if you miss the violence, listen to what Paul says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the, the deeds of the body you will live. It's like uh, the, the theologian uh, now past John Owen, his famous quote, he wrote, a, he wrote a book called The Mortification of the Flesh, right? And if you're a King James Version person or if you grew up in a KJV only church, then you will know that a lot of times in the Bible that phrase is used, mortify the flesh and its desires. If you mortify the flesh... The word mortify doesn't mean to embarrass, like, oh, mortified. No, it means to kill, right? To put in the grave, to kill. Paul says, if you, if you live by the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death by the spirit, the flesh, you will live. So Paul is saying there is a war going on. And the war is for your spirit. It's for your life. And there's God and there's the enemy. And then there's a traitor. God has claimed you as his own. And there's a traitor that seeks to give you over to the enemy. It's your flesh. Right? Now, we're not, Christianity is an Eastern religion, but it's not like other Eastern religions that say, or Gnosticism that says that spirit is good and flesh is bad. So when Paul says flesh, he doesn't mean like the skin or this suit that we wear. He doesn't mean that because he recognizes that in Genesis 2, we get a story that no other Eastern religion gets. And it's a story of God who is holy and supreme touching the dirt. Others would be mortified of that because the dirt and the the flesh, those are bad. Spirit is good. Genesis 2, spirit touches dirt, forms us, blows life into our lungs. And we are spirit and flesh. So when Paul says flesh, he doesn't mean skin or dirt. He means that piece of you that is warring against your freedom, that treacherous part of you. He means what he says in in chapter 7, when he says, uh, now what I want to do, uh, I don't do. But the very thing that I hate, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So when he says that flesh, he means body of death. He means the very things warring in you to do the things that you know Do not honor the Lord or yourself. And so Paul says, if the flesh is a traitor, then we must sentence it to the same sentence that all throughout every world civilization we've seen given to traitors. It's pretty amazing that there's a universal sentence for treason. What is it? Death. Death. Now, on an earthly level, like that, I'm like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that, right? But that's what it is. Every culture has understood that treason against your own is worthy of death. And Christianity says your flesh is treacherous. And you must put it to death. 
So anyway, mortify the flesh, going back to John Owen in his book, he has this famous line from the book, um, <clears throat> and it, it's famous for a reason. It, it says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And do you see how that's right there? And in fact, the entire book of uh, The Mortification of the Flesh by John Owen is actually just an explanation of this one verse. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so you have to see there's a perfect, perfect progressive verb there, which means we are constantly either putting to death the flesh and living or living in the flesh and dying. But it's a war. And one or the other is happening. Either we are putting to death the flesh or the flesh is putting us to death. It is killing us. And we need to see that. You are, you are being killed by your flesh, by your sins, by, Paul calls it the old man, the Adam in you. It's supposed to give life, but it never does. Instead, it enslaves you. David in the Psalms explains it like this. He says, why should the people say, where is our God? Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. But the idols of the people, they have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Noses with no smell. They have mouths, but can't speak. Right? He's saying, and literally then, that's what they did. They carved up idols out of wood or bronze or whatever and worshipped it. And so David is literally saying, look at the thing you're worshipping. It has all the attributes of life, but no life is in it. And then he says this, and those who worship them become like them. So the very thing you are worshipping you become like. So you have to understand, coming back to Paul, that what he's saying is the flesh leads to death for you because the flesh is dead. It's been put to death by Christ, but beyond that, it has always been death because it's always been warring against God. So those things, so, so let's take, for example, uh, uh, what's one? That I, I use the same ones a lot. So, so let's, let's use a different one. Let's use vanity. Right? The search for beauty within yourself. Vanity. It's already dead, in essence. Why? Because let's talk about human beauty. Right? It's fleeting. Even time wins. Every time. Time wins. And even if you remain outwardly beautiful, one day you're going to die and be dirt. And no one will remember your beauty. 1835, who is the most beautiful person alive? Exactly. Exactly. Beauty is dead and it is fleeting and it is vanity to pursue it. So when we talk about vanity, it's already death because it cannot last. And when you pursue it, you give yourself over to it. And I'm not going to like talk about specific people, but just say, how many times do you see somebody who, uh, rather than, than, than knowing who they are apart from beauty, pursue beauty well past its expiration date? Not only do they look foolish, you can tell that because this is who they are and this is their identity, they, they, they are desperate. You see it in sports all the time, right? 
you give your life over to something and then it's done. Now it's interesting in sports. It just so happens that you're, you're done at like 33, which is not old, Hazel, right? It's not old. Um, you're done at like 33 and then you have to find out who you are. You've given your whole life to something and it's just death. See, the flesh calls you to pursue things that are not alive, that are not eternal, and so they always lead to death. Greed, pride, vanity, jealousy, lust. They all lead to death. And so when Paul says put the, the flesh to death, he's not trying to be a controlling tyrant legalist. He's a loving shepherd who is saying, if you want to live, then by all means, put to death the flesh. Otherwise, it will put you to death. So I want to spend the last minutes that we have actually getting super practical, talking about how, right? So if we're, we're looking at the text and we say, we see these, these dichotomies, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the thing of the spirit, right? So he's setting this up, flesh, spirit. For those who set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. We just talked about that, right? Boom, death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the flesh, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. I love this. Indeed, it cannot. Right? And so when we're asking the question, or the question how, how do we do this? We have to keep that in our minds that, that the flesh cannot submit itself to God. And why would Paul say that unless... Sometimes the way that the flesh kills you is by tricking you into thinking that you're doing this for holiness sake. So now we come back to legalism. What is legalism? It's hostile to God because it says, God, you are lying when you say, I cannot do this by myself. I cannot do this on my own. In fact, if I set up enough rules and regulations, I can. And it's hostile to God because it's arrogance and it's pride. And you recognize it because as hard as we don't want to be, legalistic people like I am so often are judging other people all the time. We can't help it. We have to talk ourselves into forgiving people. Instead of being so overwhelmed by the fact that we're not perfect and we've been forgiven, that we just get, of course I forgive you. Right? You, you deserve to have done much worse to me. Right? It's the flesh. It's a quote that I love, Flannery O'Connor. Melissa already knows which one I'm going to. It's in Wise Blood. It says this of, of Hazel Motes. It says, he had a deep sinking suspicion that the best way to avoid God was to avoid sin. What he means is, if I, don't have to, if I don't think that I'm desperately in need of salvation or I'm desperately in need of help, then, then I'm good. I don't have to deal with this God fellow who is perfect. And if I deal with him, I'm going to see how inept and, and inadequate I am. 
But do you see the problem with that? In, in hiding behind righteousness and sewing up suits of fig leaves and good works to try and cover our shame and guilt, we lose the opportunity to be loved by a good, good father who wants to forgive us and wants us to show us and wants to show us that his love for us is not dependent on our abilities. It's not conditioned on our goodness, but it is wholly a product of his perfection. So we move on then, and we get to this question, how? How do we put it to death? Well, he says, listen to what he says in verse 13 again, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, so uh, I want you to just sort of bookmark that, tag that, flag it in your mind, put a pin on it, right? And, um, and we're going to come back to that because that's important. By the Spirit, we put it to death. But before we get to that, I want to get to practically what it looks like because that's, that's what we want, right? We hear this all the time, right? We go to church or we read a book and it's like, be holy, right? And you're like, okay, good. How? How? How do I pursue it? Well, don't do bad things. It's like, all right, well, good, but I try not to do bad things. And I, you know, I get Paul in Romans 7 a lot more than Paul anywhere else. The thing that I don't want to do here, I am doing it again every day, every month. Find myself, so how? How? Christianity is violent. So I'm going to give you two images. Both of them are violent but necessary that you must do to the flesh in order to kill it. The first is to suffocate it and the second is to uproot it. So violent images. They are. Suffocate it. Cut off its airways. Cut off its lifelines. The things that fuel it You must suffocate sin. So what are the things that fuel sin? What are the things that fuel the flesh in your life? Uh, I can think of two. You're like, I could probably think of more. But I think they all come back down to two. The first is isolation. How many times in your life when you're dealing with the flesh, you're losing it's a war, right? So you're just getting your butt kicked. And you know, I, I need help. I can't do this. But your response is because of shame or pride or both, because they're kind of sometimes the flip side of the same coin. You just isolate yourself from people, even in their presence. Some of you right now are isolating yourselves, even though you're here. You hide, you keep it in the dark. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 4. And he says, uh, where did I go? Oh, sorry, Ephesians 5. It says, um, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What does he mean when he says darkness? He means they're hidden, they're isolated. They're not in plain view. The flesh thrives on darkness and isolation. And what does he say? He says, instead, 
for it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. All right, so what does Paul mean there? What he means is that when something's hidden and in darkness, you cannot deal with it. It has life because there's nothing there to confront it. But when it's exposed, when it's put into the light, how many times in your life, Christian, has this been true? You've been buried by sin. And you finally tell somebody. You finally talk to the Lord about it. And all of a sudden, even though it's painful, even though it's a long and arduous process, those tentacles start to release. You start to feel breath in your lungs again. You start to feel like what was mud-covered, is eyes are referring to Jesus when the man was blind and he covers his eyes with mud so that all the light is gone so that he can then wipe it off and he can see clearly. What was mud covered in dark is now coming into focus. If you've been a believer long enough, you've probably experienced that. What is that? That's light coming in, exposing the sin. And it's, it, and, and, and just like, <clears throat> just like, uh, when a person, we're just going to do it, just like when a person is being suffocated, it's violent, it's painful. Your body, without your control, rise and f- flails and, and is violent and, and kicks and punches. And in the same way as you suffocate the flesh by removing yourself from isolation, there's pain and it writhes and it attacks because it wants to live and you're killing it. But you cannot isolate yourself. You must remove that. You must cut off that airway. The second is ignorance. And I don't mean that in the sense of when people are like, oh, racist people are just ignorant. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is you are ignorant to yourself. That happens to both Christians and uh, unbelievers. It's worldly and it can have a religious form, right? So in the worldly form, what it says is the things that you want to do, you ought to do because nobody can tell you that they're wrong. And so you feel this prideful arrogance in doing whatever you want and you ignore the realities of what it does to you. So often we see this. People who submit to, uh, who ascribe to this doctrine that you can't tell me anything is wrong, and if I want to do it, and it doesn't hurt anybody else, then it's not that bad. You see them, and their lives are actually in shambles. Like, I talk to people all the time. I was like, yeah, I can do this. It's like, are you happy? No, no, I'm not really happy. Like, have you considered maybe there's a correlation? The answer is no. We refuse to be self-examining, uh, to actually look at the outcome of pursuing our flesh. And then on the religious side, it's, it's shame. We've been shamed into not examining ourselves because self-examination quickly becomes self-absorption. Don't look at your sin, look at Jesus. Don't look at yourself, look at the cross. And I get that and I agree with that and I'll say that from time to time. But here's the fact, Christian, here's the fact, non-Christian, is that when you examine yourself, you begin to see that even the mediocre standards that you have for yourself, you do not live up to. 
And if you examine yourself, Christian particularly, what you will see is that there is a pattern to the flesh. Like a predator, the flesh has a routine that it uses to get you. Times, seasons, events. Maybe when you're sad. When you're sad and feeling lonely. Or in your life, it may be when you've experienced great success. You just feel a little bit good about yourself. Or it may be when you're tired, right? I'm good until about 11.45. Then all of a sudden, I don't know. Maybe it's a drink. But I promise you, if you will examine your life and your sin and that sin that keeps that keeps ensnaring you, you will find a pattern with it. And when you know yourself and you know your patterns, you can begin to change your rhythms and change your routines, not because your work saves you, but because we know that we can suffocate the flesh. We can strangle it. We want to cut off its lifeline. So, so we look and it thrives on isolation and it thrives on ignorance. So we both, it's funny how isolation and ignorance are, are both described well by darkness being brought to light. We bring it to light, suffocate it. Second thing is uproot it. That's violent when you think about it. When you're in the yard, right? I suck at weeding. I really do because I, I just doesn't interest me, number one. And so two, because it doesn't interest me, like I just don't give myself fully to it. And so it's like, oh, here's a root, root like a weed, just, and I just snap it off. But what's the problem with that? Its roots are still deep in the ground, which means it's still getting the nutrients that it needs. And a week later, it's like, oh, we got a weed again. Didn't I just weed last week? Yeah, well, you're lazy and you suck at it. So here you are again. But what happens what happens when instead you get deep down into the dirt? You disrupt the dirt. You get a hold of the root. And you pull it out, right? And you just, all the little, all the little tentacles. Right? What does it do to the dirt? When you actually root up a weed. Right? It's messy. It's dirty. Right? It's disrupted. What happens to that weed? Well, it's still there, but when you toss it out, it's not going to grow back in that same spot. Another weed might, and that's the Christian life. You just keep uprooting weeds. But what happens to the dirt? It's violent. It's, it's disruptive. Now think about your life as the dirt for a second. And now what you're doing is you're digging deep into the dirt of your life. You're disrupting it in order to pull out the weed by the root that is the flesh, that is choking out all of the things that would give you life all of the things that would bring beauty, all of the things that would bring sustenance, and now all of a sudden that weed is gone. It's painful at first. It's disruptive at first. But then there's flourishing. There's flourishing. So if you're here and you're like, okay, so how do I put to death the... The, the, the flesh so that I can live, uh, that two things, right? Suffocate it by cutting off its lifelines of isolation and ignorance and then uproot it, right? Don't just leave it there thinking that it's dead, right? It's like a Marvel villain. It's not. I just promise you, right? If you don't see a body, they're not dead. 
That's just the fantasy sci-fi action just staple. In the same way, if you don't see a body, it's not dead. Uproot that joker. Body it. Kill it. Murder it. And at this point, it feels like it's all us. And you say, well, other people say this too. But this is where I said, put a pin in it, and we're coming back to it now. It says, if by the Spirit. We don't do this by the flesh. That would be self-defeating. We do it by the Spirit. And what I love is that he talks about the Spirit and it's, it's life and peace and it's with God and it's something that you set your mind to. It's something that submits to God's law. So, so again, we say, oh, we'll do it by the Spirit. That's another one. Yeah, let's go home with that. This, I'm going to do it by the Spirit, guys. And it's like, what do you mean? I'm, I mean I'm going to do it by the Spirit, right? No, that, let's, let's, what does God say about the Spirit? How does the Spirit work? It works in accordance with the Word. Time and time again, faith comes through hearing, hearing by the Word. The Spirit leads to faith. Faith comes by the Word. The Spirit works in accordance with the Word. We're to set our minds on the things above, the words of God, the Spirit of God working in accordance with the Word of God. And what is the good Word of God that we heard even just last week? Number one, God loves you in spite of yourself. It's what we said earlier. There's nothing you can do or fail to do that will make God accept you or love you any less than he does right now or any more than he does right now in Christ Jesus. When you get the gospel, all of a sudden you are freed from the pressure of having to save yourself and invited to join in with what God is already doing in your life. You realize it's not you versus the flesh. It's God versus the flesh. And he wins. So just pick the right side. When you focus on the gospel, you realize that you're fighting a defeated foe. That you are living, and this is, I've got one more thing after this. You are living between D-Day and V-E-Day. Aren't you guys feel me on this? D-Day, Normandy. If you're my age, Saving Private Ryan, right? Normandy was such a huge battle. Why? Because we knew at this point, if we take Normandy, France, that Germany, Nazi Germany, will be fighting the Allied forces on the west and be fighting Russia on the east and just be unable to win. So at D-Day, we won the war. Germany lost. They had lost. However, the war doesn't end on D-Day, right? We have another day with letters. It's VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the day that treaties are signed, armistices, and, and, um, <clears throat> and people are surrendered, and the war is over. So D-Day, the enemy is lost. VE Day, the war is actually over. But let me tell you something. In the time between D-Day and Victory in Europe Day were the bloodiest battles of all of World War II. You have to realize that our D-Day 
Christ on the cross. It's over. He's cut off sin and death. He's killed it. Death is defeated. Jesus reigns. Game over. It's done. And yet, we wait for VE Day. When Christ returns and and vanquishes sin once and for all, we're going to talk about how glorious it is next week. But Christians, you live in between the cross and the second coming. You live between the cross and the fullness of the kingdom, which means the bloodiest battles of your life are happening right now. And you must make war. And the last thing is what we're hoping for. I love this. I love this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. And then at the end of Romans 8, it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And one of the things that Paul mentions is sin. Not even sin. Sin cannot separate us from the love of God because God is victorious. And one day, our flesh and the whole of the world is aching and groaning for the sons of God to be revealed because one day Jesus will come And listen to this, you and I will spend our whole lives warring against our flesh only to have Jesus in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, remove it from us completely. He who started a good work in you is faithful and will complete it. And when you wrap your mind around the fact that God loves you unconditionally, even when you lose a battle, that God's already done the dirty work, And that we're in between the victories. And that your victory is sure. All of a sudden, you are not working on your own power, but rather on the power of the Spirit by an emboldened faith that allows you to kill your flesh. And then it's your work, but you know it's not. It's God's work. Christians, we are at war. Let's join our hands together as we fight our flesh. One little aside to end it, right? It doesn't say fight anybody else's flesh. Fight your flesh. And imagine what happens in Union Church when we're all people who are killing our own flesh and just loving each other and loving others. Let's pray.